What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and this show is brought to you in part by our friends over at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. And this is our first chance to chat since the passing of Pope Benedict XVI, our Pope Emeritus, and thought it's an opportunity to, to reflect back on his life, his theology. What kind of an impact did he have on you and your ministry, Bishop? A huge impact. I think both Pope St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI had had the greatest impact hmm. on my life, my theology, my exorc- my ministry as a priest and as a bishop. And I mean, how blessed the church was with these two wonderful pontificates. But even before Pope Benedict was elected as Pope, as a theologian, he was already renowned. I mean, he was one of the greatest theologians. I would say the best, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. Mm. I especially learned more about him when early on in John Paul's pontificate, he was named the prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. And then that's, I think, when I began reading his theology. You know, his classic work in 1968, Introduction to Christianity, is one of the most penetrating and insightful books I've read on the Christian faith, especially in light of the modern world. Mm. He takes, he just talks about the nature of faith and reason, and he goes through all the articles of the creed, I mean, beginning with the existence of God. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, he was a major influence at the Second Vatican Council. He was not a bishop yet, but he was the chief advisor or the expert, the theological expert for Cardinal Frings. And uh, so his voice at the council was quite prominent. Then, you know, he was a professor in Germany, a couple different universities. And it was during that tumult after the council, when he was teaching at the University of Tübingen, that, you know, things started to fall apart as far as the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, which had such great documents, but there was a lot of turmoil going on in society and in the culture, and that entered in the theological realm and the life of the church, mm. a lot of confusion. And I really think that Cardinal Ratzinger and John Paul were a real steady hand in the midst of all of that. You mentioned his kind of career as a theologian before being elected pope. Do you think that is why he was elected pope or that he was... I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to talk about being elected because we talk about the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but there's also like this, this component of voting and people deciding. How do we explain that, I guess, before we, we get into? Yeah, I mean, I do think the Holy Spirit is at work, but they're also the human side. Uh-huh. But the Cardinals certainly had great respect for yeah. him. I mean, they would not have elected him if they didn't. They didn't buy into the media portrayal, and therefore they knew how bright, how intelligent he was, but they also could see his deep spiritual life. 
And the fact that he was such a, a gentle and kind man, but at the same time, they saw that his insights into the role of the church in, at this time in history were such that, that he would be a great one to elect as successor of St. Peter. Mm-hmm. And, but he always had his enemies. <laughs> there would be both within and outside the church. He was not treated fairly at all by the media. But even within the church, there were theologians who had a, had a very different perspective and approach to the teachings of the church. And this came especially to the fore after the Second Vatican Council, where these theologians, many of them dissenting from church teachings, it wasn't just about reform and renewal. There were some proposing radical changes. And that would be a very much a discontinuity with the church's tradition. Whereas Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, very much opposed that, and he believed in what is called the hermeneutic of continuity, hmm. that there isn't a radical break from the church's past, but it's an, it's an updating, perhaps you can call it. Aggiornamento is the word in Italian that they often speak of. But how do you update? It's, it's moving forward in the tradition in the light of the circumstances of the modern day, but it doesn't mean reinterpreting things in a way that really loses sight of the fundamentals of our faith. Mm-hmm. And therefore, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, and like-minded theologians, especially the Rassourcement theologians, the, this movement in theology really goes back you know, to 1930 or even before that, but it was especially strong 1930 to 1960, this wonderful renaissance in Catholic thought and theology. Some wonderful theologians like Henri de Lubac and uh, Jean Danielou, a lot of them were French, <laughs> uh, Louis Bouillet, German Hans-Urs von Balthasar, Yves Congar. These were amazing theologians. And Marie-Dominique Chenoux, and they really had an influence on, you know, the, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. I believe it was definitely a movement of the Holy Spirit getting back to the sources, ressourcement, a return to the sources. So looking at the issues of people today and the, the, the uh, crisis in culture, etc., how do we present the gospel anew? Mm-hmm. And that's what these theologians did by going back to the sources. That's what that. That's where we get that word, ressourcement. So a revival of biblical studies, a recovery of the teachings of the fathers of the church, some of the great medieval theologians. So theology in the 20th century had become rather stale. It became very neo-scholastic. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't touching people. And... So the manuals of theology that were being produced were very dry, and they would claim that they were Thomas, but it really isn't. And, and these these ressourcement theologians kind of recovered the real St. Thomas Aquinas, not the way what he had taught was becoming kind of put into, I don't know, I guess you could call it categories, et cetera, that it kind of lost its vitality. So just understanding that. But then after the council, there were also theologians, and they founded a periodical that was called Concilium, 
and which means council. And their articles and their theologies would appear there. And they were the ones who wanted to go beyond what the Second Vatican Council taught. And in some of their theology, they went so far beyond that it really wasn't being faithful to the church's tradition. I'm kind of simplifying here. Mm -hmm. So this other group of theologians, the Ressourcement theologians, decided they would found a different periodical, which is called Communio. So you have these two basic schools of thought within the church, the Concilium group and the Communio group. Uh, of course, you can probably tell Joseph Rasker was, was part of the Communio group, and that's where I would <laughs> land also theologically. Uh -huh. But the, the other group... And I don't mean to demonize them because some of them had, you know, worthwhile theology too. Mm -hmm. You can't categorize it as it's not always that black and white. But, but overall, though, the approach was different. And the Comunio group and the, under, the way of understanding Catholic teaching and the church became very much at the forefront once you have John Paul and Pope Benedict. So the other voices were not as loud, although they're still they're still there. I mean, mm. we still have those, especially in, in the last few years, they've kind of come to the fore again when they want fundamental changes in church teaching and sexual morality mm -hmm. and in, even in how the church is governed, etc. That's kind of, you know, it's a simplified way to say it. And you should we shouldn't think about these theologians associated with the Rassourcement as like a monolithic group. I mean, they had they had their own various views. They had their own range of interests, and they weren't like a coordinated group. These are just theologians who really share, there were shared characteristics among these writers. They were critical towards neo-scholasticism. They saw the importance of the place of history within theology. They were, you know, very much wanted to return to the sources, so they were very interested in scripture studies, and just think of Pope Benedict, his amazing writings on, on the Word of God. Hmm. And as I mentioned, they were very inspired by the way the fathers of the church presented the Christian message in the culture of the early centuries of the church, so that could be a model for us. It's interesting that you bring that up. We had a listener actually ask that you talk more about Rissosmont. Is that you know French better than I do, Kyle? <laughs> I don't know any French. No, I'd love to do a whole episode on that because it sounds fascinating. Talking about Pope Benedict, when I think of Saint Pope John Paul II, of all of his writings, of all of his talks and encyclicals and everything, I feel as a as a lay person. The thing he's most remembered for is probably theology of the body. As far as the impact that it's had on our, all of our educational programs and seminaries and high schools and colleges and stuff, what would you say is Pope Benedict's, the thing he'd be most remembered for as far as his writings go? I would also, I mean, I would say also Pope John Paul II, some other things that I think his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, the gospel sure. of life and there are a number of things. I agree theology of the body is part of it, but I would see his contribution or his broader than the theology of the body. I would say with Pope Benedict, it would be, I mean, of his writings as Pope, I would say he only wrote three encyclicals and each one is great mm -hmm. and also some apostolic exhortations. 
I would, if I had to point to one of his writings as Pope, I would say his first encyclical, God is Love, mm -hmm. Deus Caritas Est. And I think even Benedict once when he was asked that question, I think he pointed to that because his reflections on divine and human love are so profound. And it shows, you know, like it gets to the heart of his theology. Huh. I would also mention that it was while as, as Pope that he wrote the trilogy of Jesus of Nazareth, the three volumes. Mm -hmm. And I would put that at the top of the list. However, keeping in mind, he made it very clear that that was not papal teaching. He was writing in his private capacity as a theologian, but yeah. they came out while he was Pope. Right. But I highly recommend that to, that trilogy to people. And for some who might find Introduction to Christianity a little bit too challenging, I would think that the trilogy of Jesus of Nazareth is probably more readable uh, for the average person, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, he wrote dozens and dozens of books and articles. Mm -hmm. So I love, personally, I love what he has written about creation. Hmm. And we've talked about creation on this program. Yeah. His Wednesday audience talks as Pope are also amazing. Mm -hmm. He did a whole series on prayer, series on the fathers of the church, doctors of the church, on Jesus and the apostles. His uh, apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, on the Word of God in the life of the church, on the scriptures, that's also very rich. His apostolic exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, Sacrament of Charity, on the Eucharist, mm -hmm. I think that came out first because that was kind of completing. It's interesting, John Paul's last encyclical was on the Eucharist. He died during the year of the Eucharist, and then... Pope Benedict was elected. It was still the year of the Eucharist, and they had the synod on the Eucharist. So this was the post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the Eucharist, which is also very, very beautiful. Huh. Uh, I did a study on truth and charity, caritas and veritate. That yes, yes. What it was called? Uh, that was fascinating. Yeah, and that's more. That's the social encyclical yeah. that he wrote. And again, following in the line of his successors, of his predecessors, and but yet some new insights that there, especially because that was written right after the financial collapse in 2008. So he had some really excellent insights on kind of the underlying causes of that, I guess you could say, from the perspective of the church's social thinking and from the gospel. And yeah. it's really, that shook a lot of people up. I mean, but it was following in line with the church's tradition, but but it was critical of the financial structures in the world. Right. right. Yeah. Did you meet Pope Benedict? A number of times. Yeah. 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 Well, as Cardinal, as oh, okay. when I was a seminarian and when I was a young priest studying in Rome uh -huh. and I admired him greatly. I remember one time in the graduate school when I was living at uh, Casa Santa Maria, which is the graduate school for the North American College, I was working on two advanced degrees, and he came and spoke to us, and I thought it was fantastic. Some of the questions, there were some some of the pre-students who were not that respectful and kind of was, you know, they disagreed with certain church teachings on ordination of women and some other things, and they were kind of like, because remember, at this point, Cardinal Ratzinger was kind of like a figure that the way the media presented him, you know, he, he wasn't very likable, right. which was unfair. And some of these priests had that kind of view, hmm. but he would answer. He never like got angry, never raised his voice, never kind of put them down. 
Instead, he would listen respectfully, even if they didn't ask the question respectfully. I marveled at that. Hmm. And then what he would get into when he'd answer the question is he'd go deeper into the presuppositions of their questions. And I mean, blew them away. Yeah. I mean, that's where I say he was so brilliant. And I just marveled at that. Why do you think he did have the reputation of being harsh or stern, yeah. cruel? I, 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 feel, I don't know if it's just him being German and where, yeah. or where, where that came from. Well, I think because, you know, especially when he was prefect of the doctrine for the Congregation of the Doctrine for the Faith, part of his job was to, when there were problematic doctrinal things of certain theologians, it was his job to mm. issue corrections. Mm -hmm. And obviously having a position like that, you're going to make some enemies. Yeah. And, but he was very patient. I mean, he, there was dialogue, et cetera. But in the end, at times he had to issue kind of a reprimand yeah. or an announcement that this isn't true Catholic teaching. Uh -huh. For example, he had to do that with certain currents of liberation theology and, you know, saying that some of the Marxist elements and analyses just don't are not congruent with the Catholic faith or issues like uh, on human life that he had to, about embryonic stem cell research or about in vitro fertilization and things like that. The left really were very much disturbed by those corrections. Mm -hmm. So, but they, and they're, they of course are very much the heroes of, of a lot of contemporary media so they kind of made it look like he was this stern, authoritarian, you know, they wouldn't call it the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith. They'd use words like the Inquisition mm. of the Holy Office and things like that. So it's just very, you know, unfortunate because there wasn't a mean bone in his body. Mm. He was the model of kindness and gentleness, but yet he was firm in the faith. Sure. And the church needed that. It brought needed clarity. And John Paul, I mean, he was John Paul's closest co collaborator. And he had no ambition, no ambition to become Pope, never wanted to be a bishop. Yeah, He was just a theologian. I mean, he loved writing and he loved pondering the mysteries of the faith. So when he was called by Pope Paul VI to be Archbishop of Munich, he really, you know, resisted, uh -huh. but he would be an obedient son of the church. And, and the same thing, he didn't want to go to Rome to uh -huh. be prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And once he was there, three times he asked, uh, he submitted a letter of resignation <laughs> to John Paul, and John Paul would never accept it. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then lo and behold, he becomes elected pope. Right. So his humility and intellectual humility like he would read, for example, some of these books of some of his opponents, some of the dissenters from mm -hmm. the church. And he was very fair. I mean, if there was something good they were saying, he would, you know, praise it. But then he was not, I mean, he was so sharp, he could very much, you know, present a critical analysis. Yeah. So I think he's a model in that way. He also, when he was prefect of the congregation, they issued a document on the ecclesial vocation of theologians, reminding theologians that they really should be at the service of the church, that they're members of the body of Christ, and they shouldn't just see themselves as academics and be filled with such pride that they 
distance themselves from the living body of, of God's people. We've done episodes in the past talking about doctors of the church. Do you think that he would ever be elevated to that status of being oh. that level of theology? I think so. I mean, to be a doctor of the church, you first have to be canonized a saint. Okay. But I think he would qualify there as well. Okay. But if he is canonized a saint, I think it wouldn't take long for him to be named a doctor of the church. Hmm. He is up there yeah. among the greatest thinkers of in, in church history. Oh, great. Thank you for that reflection on his life. And there's actually a mass that's going to be celebrated in his honor. Yes. Um, Tuesday, January 31st will be a one month anniversary of Pope Benedict's death. So I will be celebrating the 12.05 p.m. mass in the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Fort Wayne. So I invite everyone to come together to pray for Pope Benedict and his eternal repose. Again, that will be Tuesday, January 31st, the 12.05 p.m. Mass at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. All right, great. Thank you, Bishop. And can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It's engineered by Josh Skipper at the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, produced by Miriam Schmitz and edited by Tony Marks for Spoke Street Media. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.